Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies with a special focus on micro private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. My conversation today is with Mike Boyd. Mike is originally from Brisbane, Australia, and currently lives in Singapore, where he runs one of the leading car rental comparison websites in the world, Vroom Vroom Vroom, among other portfolio companies. He has been an entrepreneur for virtually his entire life, starting at a very young age. Mike built on his experience starting businesses and has evolved into buying them whole. Today, he invests his own money, permanent capital, into digital-only companies and intangibles globally with the goal being to build a portfolio of cash flow producing companies for the very long term. Our conversation includes discussion on his early entrepreneurial stories, how he became CEO at such a young age, what he looks for in digital investments, and his experience building a remote team. This one and our prior phone call are two of the most memorable conversations I've had about business and investing. I hope once you finish listening, you will feel the same way. I got to know Mike after he reached out over Twitter after seeing my conversation with Trish Higgins and was very generous with his time and experience. If you work in micro-private equity or permanent capital, or know somebody who does, please feel free to reach out through my website or Twitter. I'd love to have a conversation. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Mike Boyd. So that video that I tweeted about um, where you described your thoughts on the future of workplaces and had a little bit of a Q&A session. I remember you described a few of your early entrepreneurial uh, projects when you were a kid. It sounds like you've been an entrepreneur since you were just a young young kid. And I even remember you talking about a, a keg rental business. Uh, I'd love for you to go over not only that business idea, but maybe a few others that you started when you were younger. Yeah, sure. It would be my pleasure. And, and um, certainly the keg hire business gets, a, gets good mileage. It always makes for a good story. Um, so I, I grew up in, um, I, I'm from Brisbane, Australia and, uh, growing up, you know, I'd watch these, uh, American movies where you'd see the college parties with the kegs and the, the, the red beer cups, you know, and, uh, it always just looked like such a blast, but it wasn't part of our culture. It wasn't something that was, you know, easily obtainable, uh, in Australia. So I was, uh, 17 turning 18 legal drinking age in Australia and uh, I wanted to have the coolest 18th birthday party around because, you know, <laughs> why not? This is what 17-year-olds think about. And uh, I had my priorities in order. It was all about beer. And um, I was also one of the oldest in my school year, right? So I was born right at the end of the year. So I sort of did, I, I was a year older than most. So I turned 18 before most other of my peers. And I thought if I set the bar really high and have an awesome party, then everyone's going to have to try and follow suit and I'll get invited to a year's worth of really cool parties. So that was my logic. And uh, long story short, I I wanted to to hire a keg and uh, have that for my party. Um, Googled around, even looked in the old school phone book. This is going back a few years and uh, couldn't find anyone that would do it. So I called the local, um, you know, pubs and clubs and said, you know, can I rent a keg? They said, look, we used to do that stuff 20 years ago, but we don't do it anymore. It's too much hassle. Um, we don't want people calling us at 1 a.m. saying the keg's frothy or something like that. You know, it's just not worth the effort. 
So uh, that really surprised me that, you know, I had this idea, but I couldn't find anyone with supply. Eventually I found um, one little company that was renting keg dispensing equipment, um, but it was on the Gold Coast and I'm in Brisbane. So that was about an hour, hour 15 drive away. And I spoke to the guy and he wanted uh, $100 delivery. Uh, from the Gold Coast to Brisbane and a hundred dollars the next day to come and pick it up as well So an extra two hundred dollars and in my 17 year old mind that was just way too much beer money <laughs> Being spent on delivery. So I passed on the opportunity the 18th birthday came and went and there was no cake and You know that was very very sad, but a few months later. I just couldn't get over the fact that I was the only one that was potentially looking for this. I just was really surprised that there wasn't an existing market. So I, I needed to sort of scratch that itch and I did a bit more research and discovered that sure enough, it was just this one service provider on the Gold Coast that was too far away, not even serving the capital city in Brisbane. So um, did a bit more research, determined that there was a market in it. Um, I didn't need to have a liquor license or any sort of regulatory stuff because the beer you would still purchase from the, the local pub, but what we needed to rent was all of this, the dispensing equipment to chill the, be the, the beer and uh, the gas cylinder to pump it out and all of the, all the fancy beer taps and things. So um, long story short, I was I just left school. I was 18. I uh, started my first year at university had a part-time job studying full-time and uh, I had to sort of beg, borrow and steal and uh, and uh, begged dad to lend me, uh, I think it was five grand, uh, which was a lot of money and uh, for this latest crazy entrepreneurial idea. And uh, he, he said no a few times and I, I twisted his arm and it was on the promise that I keep my part-time job to pay back the loan because he thought this thing was going to fail. And I stayed in, in uh, uni full time. So uh, I, I promised him the world and uh, borrowed the money and ordered some equipment in from the US. And it, it arrived, you know, a month later or so, and I sort of put these boxes together. They were basically fancy ice chillers. They had these big stainless steel coils that were submerged in uh, ice baths that would chill the beer on the way out, which was good for our hot climate. And um, built myself a little website uh, in the meantime, while I was waiting for the for the uh, the gear to arrive, and uh, funny story is that I went on my first overseas trip with a mate uh, when I finished high school, and I was still tinkering with this idea. And I had I had built myself half a WordPress site. Literally, had you know done a, an IT subject in in grade twelve at school. Um, didn't really know much, but but built half a website and put it up there and it was called Keg Hire Brisbane. And, um, you know, just put my phone number and an email address on there, but hadn't started a business yet, didn't have any equipment yet. And we landed in Thailand and, you know, we weren't connected. It was the days where you weren't connected all the time with a 3G SIM or a 4G SIM. So we went to a, um, an internet cafe about a week later and logged on. And I had all these random emails from people asking if they could hire a keg this Saturday or next Saturday or how much to, to get three kegs, uh, you know, for the upcoming football finals or something. And I was just blown away. I'm like, how are these people, you know, finding me and where are these emails coming from? And uh, turns out that my half-built website uh, was now ranking number one in Google for keg hire Brisbane by accident. And... Um, 
And that sort of validated the demands that, yes, sure enough, I was not the only one looking for this and there really was a supply shortage. So I, uh, I got home from my holiday and, and that's when I got serious about it, got the equipment together, finished the website and, um, and I famously paid back the loan to dad in three months and uh, went on to run that business for three years while I was at uni, working two days a week or two afternoons a week, dropping off equipment on a Saturday afternoon and picking it up from very hungover people on a Sunday afternoon. And, uh, you know, had a, had a whole bunch of cash as a uni student, which made me pretty popular. Yeah, I'm sure that helped a lot. So after uni, how did you get to where you are today with Vroom Vroom Vroom? And can you talk, us about, talk to us about your move from Australia into like the different cities you considered moving to and how that all evolved for you? Yeah, great question. And, and as, you, as they say, you can uh, always connect the dots backwards. Cooley Bar was the name of the keg hire business. And, and we started that, ran it for three years. And during that time, I also started a, a not-for-profit organization called The Hive, which was a, um, a group for young aspiring entrepreneurs to get together once a month. It was just a, an event series. And we would ask uh, prominent entrepreneurs to come along and tell their story. And uh, everyone would just get together, you know, have a drink in a bar and, and listen to this story for 45 minutes or so. It was fantastic. It was just really informal. Uh, sharing the knowledge and promoting entrepreneurship. It was also my way of trying to connect with people and, and find some friends with common interests because it was pretty uh, it was pretty unusual back then. All my schoolmates didn't really understand the way I was wired. So <laughs> I was just trying to find some like minds. But when I, when I started that event series, you know, I just thought it was an opportunity to learn, but I got so much out of it. And um, fortunately, a few of the, the prominent entrepreneurs that, that came along as guest speakers uh, ended up being, you know, impressed with what we were running. We were having 100 or 120 people a month turn up to these things. And they would often sort of, you know, catch up with me in between or find out a little bit more about this young guy running this and why I was doing it all for free. And I ended up sort of um, getting a couple of pretty amazing mentors by accident who accelerated my journey. And one of those things that came from that was a conversation about um, – social media marketing or digital marketing because they asked me about this keg hire business and for me it was a bit of a laugh it was a it was a hobby business on the side while we we're at uni but um i i told them we've never spent a cent on advertising but we're booked solid every weekend and all we ever do is promote on on social and to them that was something really really interesting because they were running big businesses but they didn't know what this social media marketing thing was. And they'd certainly never heard of anyone actually making money out of it. It was just a fad that, you know, teenagers were wasting time on. So I got the opportunity to go into uh, boardrooms and meet with marketing teams of some pretty substantial businesses around the country, um, talking to them about what I was doing and how they could do it. Because of course, with our party buyer business, our main demographic, our main target market was 18 and and 21 year olds having birthdays. So they were, the, they were ripe for social media. And one of the things we would do is send along a photographer, a mate of mine, uh, to their parties and offer to photograph the party for free. And we would then give them two or 300 photos, which they would upload on their Facebook and tag all their friends. So the photos would spread in a viral way and they would have our little uh, branding down in the bottom right hand corner saying that it was, you know, Coolie Park Kekar. And so we just got this massive word of mouth. It was amazing. And, uh, and that was quite intuitive to me. That just seemed to make sense. 
So I ended up going to these big corporate businesses and teaching them what I knew about social media and digital media marketing. And pretty much overnight, rebranded myself as a consultant and went from a, you know, a, a uni student with a beer business to a, uh, a digital media consultant charging $300 an hour. <laughs> and, uh, it was just the right place, right time and, and the right sort of connections. It was fantastic. So I, I actually sold the keg business, not for much money, but sort of sold it to a mate that I had employed in the business and moved on because this digital world was far more lucrative. And, uh, and that sort of led me to the opportunity with Vroom Vroom Vroom. So um, one of the first ever Hive speakers was an early employee from the business Vroom Vroom Vroom. And for those not familiar with it, it's the largest car rental comparison website in the Southern Hemisphere. So we, we are a price comparison website and, and book cars for Hertz and Avis and Budget and Thrifty and Enterprise and all the major brands. And, uh, and that, that Vroom 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 was a startup from Brisbane. It's not a business that I started, uh, but I met the guys through this Hive network and, um, and we were mates for a few years and then they reached out, I think it was 2010 or 11, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and they reached out because they got themselves in a little bit of trouble. The, the business was run by um, some brilliant uh, technologists that were really, really good at SEO and, and amazing at building the, the core booking engine functionality, uh, but ultimately didn't have a huge amount of business experience themselves. They weren't very commercially minded. They wanted to build websites. And, um, you know, a few contracts had ex expired with key suppliers and bills weren't getting paid and staff weren't being managed and there was no, no structure to the, the business. It was pretty fast and loose. So they asked me to come in just for a couple of hours to help them out looking at these contracts. I was sort of a friendly face rather than a scary outside consultant and um, said, sure, no worries. I was sort of branding myself as a consultant anyway while I was looking for my next entrepreneurial gig and um, went in there and discovered they needed a lot more help than just a couple of hours and uh, said I'd come back the next day and, and did that and, and ultimately wasn't looking for a job. Uh, you know, I'm not motivated by having a job whatsoever. I've always been entrepreneurial. So I said, look, I... I, I can help you guys and you need a lot of help, but, um, you know, I can only at most carve out about a day a week for you. And, uh, so anyway, I, I did that while I was bootstrapping a, a software as a service business. So the, the room consulting was effectively feeding me while I was, you know, investing sweat equity the other six days a week into trying to build the dream. And um, did that for 12 months. The, the, the software as a service business collapsed in a, in, a, <laughs> in a great big mess, a ball of flames, as they say. And uh, throughout the year, the, the major shareholder who, sorry, the major shareholder of Vroom that was largely hands-off in the UK had offered for me to come on board full-time uh, and run the company uh, probably three or four times. And I'd politely declined because... Like I said, I, I wasn't motivated by having a, a fancy job. Um, you know, I, I, I get out of bed in the morning to build my own thing and I just said, look, I, I honestly know if I took this job, uh, you know, within three months I'd probably be out of here because it's just not what lights my fire. So it was on the fourth offer. Um, Pete called me from London out of the blue and he said, Mike, I think I've figured it out. Um, I know you're an entrepreneur. I know that's what motivates you. I want you to come on board, take an equity stake in the business and run it like it's your own full time. And little did Pete know that about three days prior, 
is when my other startup collapsed. <laughs> my entire world was over and, uh, and I was looking down the barrel of, of debt and I know it was just serendipitous, right? It was, you couldn't write the story any better. So, but he didn't know that. And, and so I played it coy and, and sort of said, oh, oh, gee, you know, oh, you're sort of twisting my arm, Pete, you know, <laughs> that's a great offer. And yeah, I, I think that'll finally do it this time. Let, let's do it. So <laughs> it took me a couple of years to admit to him later that, um, that the other thing hadn't worked out literally a few days before. Oh, you didn't tell him? No, I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> so, um, so look, I, I, I came on board sort of full time. I think that was late 2011, um, took a stake in the, in the business and, um, really just rebuilt it step by step. So, um, lots of systems and structures and processes that didn't previously exist that were holding it back from scale. The business was sound in that it, it had great SEO, had great brand, had a great product, but it was, um, really restricted internally. Um, so we scaled it quite quickly. I took it from a, a Brisbane startup to a much bigger global concern. And um, today I'm, I'm still the CEO of that business. Um, we've got staff in 12 countries. We book cars in every market in the world. And um, we still sort of dominate the Southern Hemisphere. So we do car rental, motorhomes, um, camper vans, specialised insurance, and, and all sort of things related to ground transport, you know, comparison model. I'm actually curious about a few of those operational improvements you made or new processes you added. What sort of things were missing from the business that you added and how effective were they? Uh, look, it's, it really wasn't anything revolutionary. It was just the work needed to be done. So um, the business was operating in a very flat structure in a startup type environment. There were, you know, eight people in an office there was technically sort of one person in charge, but everyone just did what they wanted. There was no management structure. There was no board structure. There was no reporting. You know, if someone wanted to hire someone, they just hired someone. And whether or not there was budget or otherwise didn't seem to matter. You know, it was... That sounds like a mess. Yeah, it was a mess, but it was a beautiful mess because they'd, they'd gotten it to a certain level of success by doing it that way. So you can't discount the beginning, but it certainly wasn't what was going to take them to the next level. They needed systems in order to scale. So that's really what I brought to the business, the scalability. So, you know, we just sort of slowly modul modularized things, pulled it apart, built systems around it so that we could actually have some reporting structure and understand what's going on in the business. No one was looking at the key stats. Um, the other thing that we did was actually make sure that we're getting paid. And I know that seems like a, a pretty fundamental thing, but... Um, a lot of the car rental companies just weren't paying us or weren't paying us on time. So we had to build a, um, an accounts receivable process to actually monitor expected commission payments because really it's an affiliate model, right? We were, we were making bookings through our own booking engine and at the end of the month, you know, Avis would add up that we've sent them 5,000 bookings and they'd pay us a commission on each one of them that, that travelled. But sometimes they'd pay us for 3,000 bookings, not 5,000. And the money had hit the bank account, which is fantastic, but you wouldn't notice that 2000 were missing unless you were paying attention. So there was lots of that slipping through the cracks. There was a lot of money being left on the table. And then there was also things happening where, you know, they'd sign an agreement with a company to get a certain commission rate for two years. And then the two years would lapse, neither company would notice, and it would automatically default back down to a much lower commission rate. And so these contracts were expired 
everyone was still sort of performing under the contract, but we were no longer getting paid anywhere near as much. And again, it was just sort of a sleep at the wheel. No one was paying attention to that. So there was some real quick wins to, to come on board, tidy it up, increase commission rates, increase the, the operating capability of the business, add some, some, uh, some new talent. And um, it took a long time. You know, I've got to be honest, it, it was step by step, but we probably had the biggest impact over the first three years. And then I'd say we were a completely new business within five years. Like almost, there wasn't an area of the business that hadn't been rebuilt from the ground up. It's neat to hear. I've I've heard that from a few other folks who've taken over businesses and with uh, maybe not like grand plans, but they had you know big expectations or ideas for things they could do to improve the business, and then they get to the business and realize that there's a lot of you know more fundamental processes that aren't implemented or are implemented maybe halfway or not quite as well and. It's neat to hear that that was your experience as well, and that you had to, you know, start from maybe a lower floor than you expected. Yeah, actually, Alex, I see it all the time. You know, particularly in the digital world, I look at a lot of other businesses these days, and a lot of people are focused on things like conversion optimization in an online business, where they're tweaking the the really fine grain A B split testing or multivariate testing, the color of a button or or which message is displayed where. But um, oftentimes when you get into these digital businesses, there's much more fundamental things broken or just not done or, or haven't quite got around to it or got around to it three years ago, but we haven't looked at it again since. And uh, so there's often uh, low hanging fruit for, for want of a better phrase. And you can spend a lot of time perfecting those, those big things before you really have to get into the last 10% of conversion optimization. And you've been touching on it a little bit, but I'd love to hear about your decision to look after um, digital only companies rather than, you know, look into both physical and digital companies and then sort of the economics that attract you to that area. And then beyond that, looking into how you find these companies, where do you search? You're obviously in a very you know, international scope. That seems like a pretty big project, even just to find them in your own country. But what sort of things do you do to branch out beyond that? Yeah, well, look, there's a lot of sort of jumping off points there. So um, I guess probably one of the first parallels is I started in the party hire business where I was renting physical equipment. And it always frustrated me when I had, you know, only three or four sets of equipment to begin with. Um, you know, beer dispensers and people would call up and want to rent a fifth and I didn't have it. And so it was literally just money missed. And I knew that at the time there wasn't even a competitor in the market. So that was a, an unhappy customer that, that couldn't be served by the market. And, and so obviously I'd invest in more gear and try and grow, but it was always a key frustration that I couldn't serve that customer when they were there at the door. Uh, fast forward to Vroom 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 and we're still in the hire business, but we're instead of owning the cars, you know, we rent up to a thousand cars a day all over the world, but we don't own any cars. And I'm not trying to draw parallels to Uber or anything like that, but um, it, it's just a beautiful business model. It's just, we don't have the headaches of owning cars, servicing them, cleaning them, repairing them after damage, certifying that the person driving it is licensed and all these other real physical operational headaches. We simply um, are better at acquiring customers in an online sense than the car rental companies are themselves. So we're an extension of their digital marketing capability and they're happy to pay us a commission for that because it's cheaper than them paying Facebook for ads or Google for ads or, 
or um, you know buying billboards. We're just a cost of sale for them. So we can sell, uh, one, or we can we can book one hire car a day, or we can book a thousand hire cars a day, and, and the market's not going to run out. We can do as as much as we want. So I love that scalability. I also love um, this concept that you can build a system that adds great value for people and serve them even when you're not physically present as a as a human being. So you know, I wake up in the morning and. I own a few digital companies now, and I wake up in the morning. I check my dashboard app, right? So we've got a we've got app developers in our team, and one of the things I had them do for me a little while ago was build me a dashboard app to show me the stats across all my own businesses. It's private, you know. It's it's just for just for us internally. But I wake up in the morning and I see how many how many cars we've booked overnight, how many insurance policies we've sold overnight, how many app downloads we've had of our new products, and all these sorts of things. So. Um, I just love that it's a, a 24 hour a day, seven day a week type system um, where we're serving people and their needs at any time. And obviously, you know, when I'm asleep, uh, you know, I'm speaking to you from Singapore today. So when I'm asleep in Singapore, we're still serving uh, the US market, the European market. Um, and during the day, we're serving a lot of the Southern Hemisphere. So it's just a, to me, I, I love that there's no bounds on that. And, you know, you asked me about global before so how did i how did i move and where have i moved around the world with different cities i'll I'll jump back to that now that we're three questions deep i just remembered your question um so the vroom from vroom business was founded in in brisbane and, and that's where i'm from as well but as we scaled we had a need to employ people in different parts of the world even though we didn't have an office there so we were very very early adopters of a remote workforce before we even really knew what that was, um, just out of pure necessity. So when it was a small, less than 10 person team, we started building the technical capability to book cars on the other side of the world, which really wasn't that much harder. It was just a different market, different product, but the website was still capable of it. So we might be booking a car in London, for instance, for a customer while we're asleep. But we would wake up in the morning, and I say we, but this was before my time, would wake up in the morning and there'd be a, a customer service email that was six hours old that you know someone had sent us from London, we'd jump on it. And by the time we did that, it was just too late. So it wasn't the service standard we were trying to deliver. So we quickly had to figure out how to hire someone remotely in the UK or at least close to that time zone who could just do email and ultimately move on to do phones and, and live chat and, and all the service channels that we have today. So we used um, the freelancer websites like upwork.com and um, you know a few others, it was Odesk back then, and hired people that were looking to work from home that had experience with customer care. And we would literally just onboard them into our software as a service tools that we were using for customer support, our help, help desk system, our email system and uh, train them up over Skype and, uh, and set them free. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 had, um, it had some wins and some losses, uh, I'll admit. We really didn't know what we were doing in the early days and it was very difficult to manage people on the other side of the world in different time zones, but we persevered and over the last decade, I'd say we've, um, we've built some real IP in running globally remote teams. Um, I, I think I said before, these days we have team members in 12 countries, but we're only located physically in three locations. 
Um, so head office is still Brisbane. We've got a back office in Manila in the Philippines, and uh, and I'm opening another office here this year in Singapore. So uh, every other country, the other nine countries, are represented by people that work from home or work from a co-working space, and it's simply because they bring digital skills that they can do with a, a laptop and an internet connection. And we absolutely love that global marketplace of talent, but also of of serving customers all over the world in different time zones. I loved the the website that you had on CEO AMAs. I thought that whole uh, discussion was really fascinating. Um, for those who are interested, it's ceoama.com, I believe, if I'm correct. Uh, .co. It's just .co. Oh, excuse me, .co. I'd love for you to just chat very briefly on uh, your with these remote teams and how you communicate across and how you use this CEO AMA format to communicate with your team members who are literally all over the world? Yeah, great question. And um, look, the CEO AMA is something I came up with a few years ago. Um, it's inspired by public AMAs on uh, Reddit. And for those not familiar, an AMA just stands for Ask Me Anything. And, uh, you know, oftentimes they'll have someone famous or, or, or prominent in an industry jump on Reddit and just answer Q&A style for an hour or so uh, in an AMA. I thought the idea was cool and, and one of our DNA within our group is transparency and I wanted to do that internally within the group to see if there were questions that the team had that I could answer, um, particularly because they're spread out and I don't get FaceTime with them all, all the time, but also just to promote a healthy internal discussion and encourage people to speak up and ask questions if they have them about the business. So I um, had no idea if it would work or not, but we tried it a few years ago and I effectively just turned on a webcam and started streaming live to a, a private YouTube channel. Uh, we distributed that link internally to the team um, on a, well, these days we use Slack as our chat collaboration tool. So we share the link there. Um, and in the two hours prior to the AMA, we open up a, a channel where people can publish questions and they just type in questions that they'd like to know. And the rest of the team, uh, upvote them if they're really interested in that. And all that simply does is help us, uh, filter the questions with the highest priority so they get answered first in case we run out of time. And, uh, when we first started the AMAs, we, we built just like a, a Google form to allow people to submit questions anonymously. And we still allow that today because I, I really want to encourage people to ask anything. Um, but we've actually found over the years that public questions and the ability to vote on them has improved the quality of the discussion overall. And people are still asking some really robust questions, even though it's no longer anonymous. So uh, the, the questions come in, they get uh, voted up. Uh, usually we get about 60 or 70 questions generated in the two hours prior. And this is from a team of about 60 odd. And um, it's, it's amazing to see the questions that get asked and then amazing to see the ones that are popular, that, the, that lots of the team wanna see answered because that gives me incredible insights as a leader as to what people actually want to know, but also where can I do a better job of communicating? Why didn't they know this stuff already? Particularly if it's a question about the business. So uh, I jump on, I usually um, stream for, for an hour. I haven't seen the questions prior and that's really important. So it's, it's really ask me anything. It's very transparent. If I don't know the answer to the question, I'll say I don't know. 
if it's a really difficult or awkward question to answer, they'll see me squirm on camera. <laughs> and that, you know, that's important too. Um, you know, if it's a funny question, like, can we all have a massage chair in the office or something, then yeah, sure. We'll, we'll make a laugh out of it. But there's also some really robust, um, incredible questions about, you know, the strategic direction of the business or, you know, what's, what's keeping me awake at night as the CEO or what sort of books am I reading at the moment or, you know, et cetera. So, uh, it's been absolutely incredible. The feedback from the team has been just amazing. Uh, so we run them about once a quarter now. Uh, that seems to be a good cadence for, for how often they want these sorts of sessions. Um, and the team are always extremely grateful for the transparency they get back from me and the knowledge I share. But if anything, I'm more grateful for the opportunity to learn from them what's important to them through the questions they ask. So it's an incredible uh, little communication exchange and I encourage more and more leaders, they don't have to be CEOs of anything, just a leader to um, to basically turn on a video and or sit in a room and do live AMAs with your team because it's incredible the assumptions that I make about what I think people know and understand. And then when they ask me clarifying questions about it, I realize there's a gap in my communication and I could do it so much better. So um, it's an amazing learning opportunity. Yeah, I love that format. I love that idea of, you know, you don't know everything about your business and other people, other people in your team are finding out little bits and details that maybe you weren't picking up on and they're giving them back to you. And I think that's really, really interesting. I'd really like to discuss your uh, sourcing of deals and how you go about finding new companies to buy. And if that process, how that process changes by the country, like if you're looking at a country or a, excuse me, a company in Japan versus Australia or Vietnam, how do they each differ? I assume, you know, the cultural differences come in a lot to a great deal. Um, and then how do you go about, uh, filtering out these digital companies? Yeah, great question. So just to paint a little bit more background there, the Vroom 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 business is sort of our, our platform business, but we also launched another, um, business back in 2014 called Hiccup Insurance, which is a specialized car rental excess insurer. Um, we build a cool technology platform for that and we issue insurance policies underwritten by Allianz and it's a natural upsell to all of our customers that are renting cars. We offer them insurance in case there's uh, damage while they're on their journey. So we, we do a lot of cars and insurance and then other ancillaries. We're looking at parking verticals and you know other things related to motorhomes and things like that. So if you think of it in terms of a traditional private equity model, the, the vroom 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 being the flagship comparison side is sort of the platform business. And then there's these other bolt-on businesses um, attached to that building a, a bigger group. So today we refer to it as the Vroom Group and we are you know, actively looking for other um, products and verticals we can bring to market either by building them themselves and resourcing it up or by um, acquiring and, and integrating into the group. So that's sort of one sort of little PE thing. And I'm happy to talk about that within the Vroom Group. But then the other side of it is um, from a, on the private side, um, my wife and I actually work together in the group and uh, we have quite complementary skill sets. And uh, we have started something called Mudbrick Capital, where we're actually looking to acquire digital intangible businesses similar to the ones that we already own and operate, using that um, 
existing capability and resources and building a wider portfolio that are diversified away from travel, away from car rental. So we're pretty excited about that, but it's still early days. Um, but we're looking at um, a lot of opportunities in the digital intangible space. So sometimes I'm talking about within the Vroom group, if they're closely related to, to online travel, sometimes I'm talking about within Mudbrick Capital. But um, basically what we're looking for are businesses with similar characteristics, irrespective of where they are geographically in the world. So if we're talking about internet businesses, I'm typically looking at them if they're in English. So that's the first um, qualifier. If they're in Japanese, for instance, they're no good to me. Um, and that cuts out a, a, a sizable chunk of the market. But you know, in terms of uh, digital entrepreneurship, most of it's in English as well. So we're looking at businesses that are intangible in nature. So I mean, not physical. Uh, so we're not buying e-commerce companies that have uh, physical inventory to ship. We're not buying um, fresh food or produce businesses that have perishables that, that age and go off. Um, we're buying digital intangibles similar to, to Vroom. You know, I often say that Vroom is actually in the business of selling a confirmation email with a, a booking reference number for Avis attached to it. And the, the insurance business is in the, in the business of selling a policy confirmation email with a policy number. And my cost of goods sold for those businesses are negligible. It's the cost of sending an email. So obviously we have all sorts of user acquisition costs, but from a traditional sense, we can, we can issue as many of those types of products as we want um, without running out of resources because we're just sending emails. So we love to look at things like um, digital products or, or one-time use software, um, online learning where people are buying courses um, or buying some sort of specialized niche education, buying, you know, buying a digital download. Software as a service to an extent, but we prefer sort of that B2B space in software as a service. Happy to talk a bit more about that. Um, membership sites, sometimes large affiliates, um, but ultimately these infinitely scalable digital intangibles is where it's at. Now, the reason why we look at that space is, is for a couple of reasons. One, they tend to have incredibly fat margins and we like fat margins. <laughs> um, but you know, in, the, in this digital product space, because the inputs are so low, you're more buying expertise or you're buying some curated product. The margins or the gross margins can typically be upwards of 70 or 80%. And when we look at a product rather than a business, that's often what we see. When we're buying a business that's a little bit more robust and, and much bigger in scale, and they've built a whole business around a digital intangible, then they tend to be running EBITDA margins of, of close to 40 or 50%. And that's indicative of what we're running within the Vroom Group as well. So you, we have, you know, even if the gross commissions on these sorts of car rental products aren't that big, we can run the business so leanly in a digital environment that of the cash we do make, we tend to keep half of it, which is substantial. So we, we're basically pulling the cash out of the existing businesses and looking to deploy it in more businesses and, and ultimately compounding that into a small portfolio. We're also looking for things that we can own in perpetuity or the very long term, um, because the, the model is really built around cash flowing businesses and redeploying that cash, buying more of them 
because the other challenge with these sorts of sustainable, profitable digital intangibles, sorry if that's a bit of a mouthful, is that the capital cannot be readily redeployed. So once you've covered your R&D expense and you're paying you know, a bunch of expensive but highly talented software developers to reinvest in the product and build out new features, there tends to be little capital that you can redeploy in a digital business other than enormous amounts of customer acquisition costs, which usually just goes to Google ads or Facebook ads. And that's not really a good, good use of capital. So we like to build uh, recurring revenue models and, and repeat customer models in pretty fabulous niches, in our opinion, uh, that fly under the radar and, and are profitable year over year. Rather than trying to be a land grab, um, taking a VC type approach and just pouring money at user acquisition, irrespective of whether or not it's profitable. We're, we're really, really big on, on net profitability. So that also cuts out a huge amount of the things that we look at in the online space. Because when we're looking for businesses to buy, all of the media is dominated by the VC and, and the Silicon Valley model, which is fine. It serves a, a certain part of the market, but this, it, it is only a certain part of the market. There's a lot more out there. So, uh, you know, you can, you can read TechCrunch and all of the other, you know, major mastheads in tech and everything, it seems every other article is, is promoting a capital raise, you know, such and such just raised a bazillion dollars. And it's like, well, good for them. You know, I'll wait for the, the article in two years time saying, unfortunately, it didn't work out They're closing up shop or, you know, they've been acqui hired away because they couldn't find product market fit. For us, we're not playing so much in the startup space. We're buying things that already have proven markets. They're already profitable and we're buying them and, and helping them scale. That's fantastic. I love hearing about the economics in particular. I'd love to hear more about uh, the types of companies that you've found through Mudbrick Capital. And have you? I'm assuming you've acquired a few of them and has that process been pretty smooth or has there been a few learning lessons along the way when it comes to uh, the actual transaction of buying these companies. How have you learned and evolved your process in buying a company from an owner? Yeah, it's a great question. So Mudbrick Capital was literally born about six months ago. So it's brand new on you know, in the world and still has a lot to learn. So, so don't let me oversell that idea to you uh, in this recording, but I'd love to pick it up with you in, in another year's time and see how far we've progressed. Um, but look, the early lessons, let me talk about that. So obviously we're playing in a space that we know reasonably well because we're participants already, but we're now formalizing the structure under Mudbrick Capital and trying to do it at a bit more scale. The, the early lessons we've seen is that a lot of the digital businesses for sale are just rubbish, right? So the things that you find published online or promoted through the, the normal brokers and things like that are just the bottom of the barrel. Um, and it's what you'd expect, right? They're, they've already um, tapped their private lists or their network. Uh, those people have already passed on it probably twice. And by the time it hits the internet, it's, uh, it's open slather for someone silly enough to buy them. And, you know, not to say that there aren't some gems out there, but really you're filtering through a lot of rubbish. And what I mean by that is at the very low end, there's people that are selling um, pretty scammy sort of affiliate websites or, or Amazon FBA businesses that are, you know, they're doing well for a couple of months and they try and extrapolate that out for, 
for 12 months prior income and, and get a ridiculous multiplier on it or something. And, and you know, it, it's not a real business. It's a fly-by-night pump and dump. And uh, there's also a lot of sort of scammy people that have aggregated um, thousands of domain names and built a link network or selling dodgy ebooks. And I mean, this stuff is nauseating. It's not real business. It's not something that you want to look at in the PE model or anything. It's just, it's, it's, it's a time waste. But unfortunately, operating in a digital space, you, you do have to sift through a lot of this. So one of the early lessons we learned was that, well, for a start, we're not going to find most of our opportunities in a public sort of retail sale environment. We're going to have to build um, our own deal flow and, and go about it in an interesting way. Um, and, you know, everyone talks about proprietary deal flow. It's not so much about just saying that. I think it's more a necessity in our space because people are either trying to sell um, businesses at the high end on a VC type multiple where they're not profitable, but they have unrealistic valuations or they're absolutely micro and, and have no sort of sustainability or moat. Um, we're looking at a, a, a sweet spot in between. We, we sort of operate below traditional private equity. I call it micro private equity. Um, we're in the space of about $250,000 to $2 million a year in owner earnings. That's sort of the, the area that we're looking at. Um, and these sorts of businesses are transacting at the very low end at about two times up to the high end of about six and a half times if they're incredible and growing. But those sorts of multiples might surprise some people out there because they're still pretty low, right? And it's because this is private markets, um, extremely fragmented marketplace, and a lot of people that are trying to sell an existing, mature, and profitable digital business get drowned out by, again, by this VC model. They, they either think that they can get an astronomical valuation because they own a tech company, or they have absolutely no one to sell to because everyone in the space is an angel investor or a VC, not someone that wants to own a company and operate it sustainably for another decade. And that's sort of the void that we're trying to fill. We, we are happy to buy, own, and operate digital intangibles for the long term. We're not trying to um, pump them up and, and flip them. We have no outside capital, so we're under no pressures to return um, capital to investors, you know, within seven years or within five years or anything like that. I mean, that might change in the future, but at the moment we've, we've got this group of cash flowing companies that is generating, um, substantial capital that we're looking to redeploy. So, um, where can I, where can I go to from here? I guess the deal flow, I'll talk a little bit about where we're finding opportunities. So, I'm a member of uh, YPO, which is Young President's organization, and it's a, a network of CEOs and founders of, of substantial businesses all around the world. And most people, at least in my chapter in Australia, um, are not tech companies. There's a lot of traditional businesses in there from construction to agriculture to you know, food processing and all sorts of just you know, big physical stuff. And I love it because I learn a huge amount and I'm exposed to things that I, I never normally see in my world and vice versa. Um, you know, the, the other members that I spend time with love to get a bit of a tech perspective because, uh, you know, all businesses are exposed to tech these days. But, you know, I can use an example of a, a friend of mine I was talking to recently owns a um, shipping container 
storage facility. It's called a container park. And he has these, you know, enormous forklifts that lift up shipping containers and stack them on top of each other and, and has a facility where he stores thousands of these things, you know, near the waterway um, because basically containers come into port, they're unloaded, they need to go somewhere before they're reloaded and put back on a different ship. And there's a whole logistics program behind it. Um, but he was telling me that they use a, a very legacy and, and proprietary system that they bought from someone that literally scans the barcodes of the uh, of the containers coming into the park and scans them out. It's just their inventory system. But because they bought this, this system from someone years ago, they're using very, very old school PDA devices out in the field to scan these barcodes. And they're paying uh, $3.50 out of every $10 in revenue uh, to scan a barcode. So they're paying $3.50 in and $3.50 out um, across tens of thousands of containers. And that just blew my mind because a 35% gross margin on a, on a barcode scan, you know, you just don't see that in a technology world, but maybe in container parks you do. And, you know, I dug a little bit deeper to understand that this really was a very, very niche business, but substantial in its revenues. Uh, but it was also underserving my friend and his business because it was, it was well and truly out of, out of date. So these days, you know, anyone with an iPhone in their pocket can scan a QR code or an Android or, or what have you. And barcode scanning technology is free for a start. But the service they built on top of it was not uh, was not really cloud-based or backed up. They had a server sitting in the back room of this, you know, demountable shed in a container park just to make this scanning work. So as you can see, we find some, some pretty amazing stuff out there, some pretty crappy stuff as well. But that that brought an opportunity to the service for us where we looked at either uh, buying that business and turning it around and improving it because they have some pretty um, sticky customers as you can imagine and or and or I should say replacing the business and out competing so that's probably one one differentiator in our model where we're happy to 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 buy own and operate we also come from a background of where we've founded companies and and happy to operate them to a really high standard. So that's a model where we had an existing customer who said, this is my pain point. This is what I'm currently paying. If you can buy it and improve it, that'd be amazing. But if you can replace it at a cheaper rate and at a higher, a higher service offering, I'll be your first customer and I'm happy to sign a contract to that effect. So that gave us a, a, an opportunity to basically run the numbers on, on founding it versus buying it. And um, we've got something there in DD at the moment. So the YPO deal flow, even though it's not really a formalized process, is where I'm getting a lot of proprietary opportunities that others normally wouldn't find. I've then seen some stuff at a higher end where I've been through um, food processing facilities and, and um, large-scale agriculture that are using um, similar sorts of very niche software to manage their vegetable count, right? To see what's coming in off the farms and process through facilities, go through washing facilities to clean potatoes and things like that, and then count them based on weight and sort them based on bagging and all this sort of thing. And uh, again, I've found businesses there that have been owned for 20 years um, that originally started off as desktop software that have tried to make the move to cloud have ended up somewhere in between and they have usually 
in the in the range of 20 to 30 customers. So a really high cu customer concentration mix, but also a very, very deep moat because it's not the sort of thing that you could just bolt in Salesforce or something like that to replace. It's very niche. And um, we get pretty excited about those opportunities because they tend to be, uh, the owner tends to be involved, founder owner. Um, we're finding that they've owned them for 20 years. They're in their mid fifties to sixties. They're potentially looking to retire. They have absolutely no one that can wrap their head around this space because it is so proprietary. Um, and they don't know even how to go about selling it. So we, we approach them with a conversation that that's usually, you know, in no rush, but we present ourselves to someone that they can turn to, um, when they think that they might like to, to start a transition out. And um, we tend to take a, a majority stake, if not a hundred percent stake, um, in a business like that, and and own it for the long term. We're happy to happy to take the cash flow. How big of an impact is that on sellers when you um, explain to them that you don't have any outside capital and it's all your own? And you know, part of the reason I asked this question is I I really have found that in order to do in order to acquire businesses um, and realize a return really effectively, it's really important to have this permanent capital and not have where it's your own money and, and you don't have any outside investors that you have to, like you said, return capital to. How big of an impact is that on the sellers you talk to and how important is that when they're making the decision whether to sell to you or somebody else? It's a great question. I think, you know, those of us that have sort of read up on this space understand the impact of that, but some of the potential sellers we speak to don't even have a grasp of it yet. They don't understand the different types of buyers. And so therefore, something that I think is a competitive advantage, they don't even acknowledge as, as us being better than the next guy because they don't understand that the source of capital matters and the deal terms matter. So the ones that do get it, it really does give us an edge and it more becomes um, a sale based on personal relationships. So probably the only downside I would say there is that I spend a lot of time on airplanes and a lot of time shaking hands and, and walking through businesses that I know nothing about, which I find fascinating, um, but it's not the most scalable model. And that's okay because I appreciate that you have to go where other people are unwilling to go and either to find the deals that aren't, you know, affiliate websites on the internet. So, um, the permanent capital model is an interesting one. You know, we, we're happy to deploy that capital because it's our own and deploy it in a permanent way because we know the return that we can earn on it. I spoke about the, um, the multiples that we were talking there earlier from two times to, I mean, really it's two to four times, but you know, at the very high end, you might get into the fives and sixes. But if you're talking two to four times, the averages are transacting in the high threes and fours. You're talking about something that, that transacts at four times is 25% return on capital, right? You own it for four years and, and, and the capital's returned. So, and that's, that's assuming no decline in business and no improvement in business. And we tend to think that we've got some pretty strong uh, business processes and operational discipline that we bring to the table, as well as a whole bunch of efficiencies that we can bring. And by efficiencies, I don't mean um, tearing out costs or, or staff. We, we like to keep a business that's running well and just add to it. But because we've got global teams and, and understand how to run remote teams around the world, if a business that runs in, in a rural city that, 
that is a technology company but focuses on agriculture and it hasn't yet harnessed the overnight workforce of low-cost um, labour in Manila, for instance, to just do data processing, then why can't we add that to the business and help them move more, more quickly or more efficiently? So it's not often about removing things, it's, it's often about adding things or streamlining. And uh, the owners that get that love it and often find that they've been quite lonely in their ownership of these businesses, particularly if they've owned them for 20 years, no one gets it or no one wants to get it and they have no one to talk to about it. And so when we come and we're interested and we genuinely want to learn the business, um, we often reinvigorate an, an existing owner and they tend to want to retain a minority stake and sit around, uh, or sorry, stay around for a bit longer because uh, all of a sudden they've got some extra resources and some interested parties to, to take it to the next level, which is really exciting. Um, it's not all based off their own steam. I find it interesting that your the multiples that you're finding for these companies are for these digital companies are the same range of multiples that uh, most other you know private companies are transacting at, and that these you know these companies have you know typically much larger margins and larger scalability. Why do you think these digital companies are still only trading in that, like you said, two to four multiple range? Yeah, excellent question. And I think it speaks to the very narrow band of digital companies that we're looking for. So as soon as a digital company is uh, sustainably profitable, their valuation upside is limited then based off typically their EBITDA or, or a similar metric and their growth rate. So what we actually are looking to buy is mature, profitable digital businesses. And by mature, I mean, we're happy to buy a business that's, that's consistently profitable, but growing at maybe only single digits. You know, a lot of people in the tech world would go, I only want to buy a business that can, that can double or triple or quadruple or something every year. I, I want the hockey stick growth that, that, um, that the VC world chases. I'm looking for the opposite. I'm looking for consistent cash flowing assets that just happen to be digital. And so as soon as you look at something based on a, a discount cash flow or a, an IRR or, or something like that, it comes back to pretty similar metrics to traditional businesses. Yes, they have um, wider margins, but that's already accounted for in the EBITDA that they're generating because there's, there's often a trade-off. If you're looking at traditional businesses where, you know, maybe I'm looking at the software that runs an agricultural processing facility versus buying the agricultural processing facility. If I was buying the facility, I'm getting physical assets and other collateral that actually help bolster the valuation. If I'm buying the digital business, all I'm really buying is the future cash flows and counting on the fact that the existing contracts or customers renew and stay with the business. I don't have a lot of um, assets to back the purchase. So I'm comfortable with that, a lot of people aren't. And the other thing too is that I, I should qualify the, the sort of EBITDA margins that we're achieving across the group that are close to 50% aren't necessarily normal. That, that represents well-run and efficient lean operations. When we look at uh, some of these other private businesses, the, the EBITDA margins tend to be much lower, but we, during our due diligence, that's, that's some of the upside that we usually identify, ways to actually either increase the profitability of the business 
or have a look at some of the um, expenses that the current owner is incurring that really don't need to be. And again, I don't mean that in a, in a uh, ruthless PE model. I more mean that they've typically owned it for so long that they've just incurred costs that are, that are hanging on that don't need to be there anymore or they're paying for, you know, the kids' private school fees and, and the holiday home up the road and, the, and the all sorts of other stuff that you have to have to weed out that tend to get into the books of uh, very, very private businesses that have been owned privately for a long time. Yeah, I've heard that other private expenses tend to get uh, looped in with some of these uh, companies. So that kind of leads to um, a discussion around that, that EBITDA that you are first presented with when you initially look at the business, um, from that initial number, what sort of things do you add or take out of the number that gets you to what is most likely the realistic, um, quote unquote, earning owner earnings of the business itself? I wish there was an easy answer for it. It tends to vary by industry and by business. If it's a consumer, if it's a B2C digital intangible, then often what's not represented accurately is the cost of customer acquisition. Um, you know, oftentimes a buyer, sorry, a seller will represent that those costs are uh, minimal or a fraction of what they actually are. Um, those sorts of costs can be spun in, in lots of different ways um, with things like, oh, you know, that was just a one-off campaign, but we don't need to spend that money again. Or um, you know, all of our money comes from recurring customers when actually it's 30%, not 100%, things like that. So understanding a, a sort of a combination of digital analytics as well as the financial um, and, and making those two numbers talk to each other because in the digital world, the biggest costs are typically marketing. Digital marketing is expensive and businesses that rely on Facebook or Google ad spend turn us off pretty quickly because um, it's just not something that you can control. It'll move pretty quickly. And ultimately, they tend not to be brands. They tend to just be something where they're, they've got an acquisition machine that works for now, that it won't always work. Whereas we would prefer um, you know, a B2B business with sticky customers uh, and limited opportunity, you know, very high switching costs. Or if it's a B2C business, we wanna see a leading brand or some sort of dominance so that people are coming back directly to the service rather than going via Google or Facebook to find it. You know, so that repeat rate is really, really high and really important. Um, B2B, I'm, I'm just trying to think of the different examples. So B2B, we tend to see a lot of other sort of business expenses that are owner expenses built in that they try and add back um, to boost the EBIT and we do take a pretty close look at ad backs um, because the arguments as to whether or not they should be in or out are usually interesting. Um, and on the B2C side, yeah, I'd say it's all, it, it all focuses around acquisition costs as to whether or not it's a true indication of, um, you know, if you purchase the business at that EBITDA, could you actually continue the growth rate without reinvestment? And oftentimes after a bit of adjustment, the answer is no. Um, it's not because people are being dishonest. It's just that, you know, everyone gets dollar signs in their eyes and, and uh, you know, you can't help but tweak that EBIT number a little bit. So we tend to find a, a fair number in between. And you, you spoke a little bit about it, but, and just brought it up as well, but the reinvestment risk for these digital companies like Vroom 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 and, you know, the sort of companies you're finding uh, in your searches. I'm really curious if the... If part of the reason you started Mudbrick Capital 
was that there was this reinvestment risk in your own original companies and you needed somewhere for that money to go. And like you said, it's hard to put it back into the business sometimes. Is that part of the reason you've started these other investment vehicles? Yes. I mean, part of it's private diversification. Mudbrick Capital is a you know, a family operation that we hope to run for, for uh, decades um, and, and build a fairly substantial portfolio of assets there uh, and, and ultimately you know, buy similar assets that are cash flowing and, and use that to buy more and compound them over time. But in terms of the reinvestment risk in a business like Vroom Vroom Vroom, I'm happy to give you a, a very specific example. So the this is the 18th year of operation for Vroom Vroom Vroom, which is almost the age of the modern internet. That's a very, very long time for an internet-based business to be around. And so, you know, we are that exact definition of a mature digital business. We have no debt, no outside capital, uh, no service requirements whatsoever, and we have EBIT margins of 50%. So it's a cash machine, but the growth rates are tiny. They're single digit percentages because we're mature, we're big, we own uh, the Australian and New Zealand market and a lot of the Asia Pacific market. We book cars in the US and Europe and all over the world, but those markets for us are tiny. And the reason for that is our brand is well known, Down Under, and that's where we started. But also our major dominance is we got an early start, we got a head start advantage on SEO. Over a decade ago, when SEO was critical, we ranked number one, number two, number three in Google for, for searches like car rental Sydney Airport. And to this day, we maintain over 10,000 content pages related to car rental in various locations around the world that help us rank. And part of our whole strategy is useful content for customers so they find us when they're looking for us. Because in that market, you don't need a car, you don't need to rent a car every week. You might rent a car once a year. And so there's no point in me blasting you with an email three three times a week to say, hey, I've got a special 10% off rent a car. Because if you don't need a car, you just don't need a car. So the strategy for that business is more around uh, discoverability and being there when you need us. And then after you've discovered us, retaining the customer and having them come repeat back to us directly and back to that memorable Vroom 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 brand. We also own other flagships like carhire.com.au in Australia and, and other brands that do basically the same thing. But we've learned that the Vroom 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 brand does the best over time because it's memorable, it's sticky, and it is actually our brand. Um, now, comparing that, so we still do incredibly well from SEO. And some people think that's risky because there's too many eggs in the Google basket. And I agree, which is part of the reason we want to diversify. But also, to some extent, I disagree because we've maintained it for 18 years. And it is a, it's a low cost of customer acquisition for us because people find us for free through Google, but it doesn't take into account the, the 10 years worth of investment in content and team and, and everything else that we've done to put us in that position. So c- competitors, um, you know, we have a competitor like rentalcars.com, which is the largest car rental comparison site in the world. And you'd most probably be familiar with it in, in the States. Um, those guys finally discovered Australia about three years ago. You know, before that, it was just too small for them to bother, I think. And they came in and they, they dropped $3 million marketing in three months and bought TV ads and billboards and, and 
lots and lots of Google ads. So even to this day, they still spend on Google um, to outrank everybody and buy the top Google ad for car rental search terms. But they're doing so at a loss leading position that we would never bother. So we, we have the organic results, but there might still be a couple of ads above us. And I've spoken to the team over there because we see each other at industry conferences. And the last stat I heard was that they were um, counting on a repeat rate of 3.6 rentals per customer in order to break even on that spend. So the ad spend was so high and it was such loss leading, they were hoping that the customer would repeat effectively four times and book a car through them four times to make some money. Now I know that the average consumer only rents 1.7 cars a year. So you're talking about trying to get a lifetime value of a customer over five years, which just doesn't happen in the travel world and even the digital world, it it moves too quickly. So these guys just have deep pockets, they're owned by booking.com and they're fueling this funnel of acquisition that doesn't make money. And we are the opposite of that. We'll take the mature, slow growth of organic and a much lower cost of acquisition and instead get people to return to our brand rather than trying to compete with them on ad spend. So in terms of reinvesting capital and getting back to your your core question, that's really the only place I could deploy large sums of money to try and compete in the marketplace. I've already ranked number one in Google, so I I can't reinvest to go any higher. I have a disproportionate spend on IT and software development staff because that's how we do R&D. We add new features or have a better user experience or a better booking flow that's faster and easier. That sort of thing is incredibly important to our business. That's how we redeploy capital. But once I've satisfied that need, the only other place I could put it is ad spend at a loss. And that just doesn't make sense to me. So I'd much prefer to pull that cash out and and put it into something that actually has a return rather than a negative return. As we begin to close here, I have two final questions for you. Uh, The first one is, what is the most fortunate event to have happened to you that was completely by chance? Well, I don't know if it's completely by chance, but I honestly have to go back to that story I told earlier where, where my business partner to today, Pete, called me from London three days after my startup collapsed um, to, to add a bit more um, to add a bit more to that story. I was 20, 20. I was, I was 20 or 21. So I was young and I'd spent the last 12 or 18 months building this software as a service startup for the mining and engineering space. And we built some pretty incredible software. And the deal was that, that I knew a little bit about digital and I knew how to run digital teams. I came on as the managing director to run the business and I was backed by two um, businessmen that had engineering firms or, or things already related to the industry that we were going to sell software to and they were the financial backers. So there was three of us in it, equal shareholding, we we're all directors, um, but I was in it for sweat equity and, and no money down and they were in it to to fund the investment for a couple of years until break even and, and then we'd all be fabulously rich was the plan. Um, and unfortunately what happened was these gentlemen ran out of money, but they didn't acknowledge that. And they started, there was a downturn in the mining industry in Australia and their other businesses suffered and their ability to fund the startup then wavered, but they tried to pretend like it didn't. 
So unfortunately, it ended up in a, in a case of fraud where they were actually shuffling cash from one business account into the other business account and then quickly moving it out again as a shell game to try and make sure it looked like all of the businesses were, you know, trading in above water and they very much weren't. So when we, uh, when we had late payroll a few times and, and that was my team, you know, I wasn't getting paid anything, but, um, but my team were, and I was working with them in the trenches every day to build incredible products. And when payroll was late and a few other things happened that affect the team, I really, you know, did what I should have done earlier and, you know, demanded board meetings and access to financials and things like that. And, and I was only 20 and pretty naive and, um, and I was along for this journey with these people that had been there and done it before. I mean, they were 20 and 30 years older than me. And I, uh, I trusted that they knew what they were doing and, and um, I learned that lesson. <laughs> um, and look, so we, it, it all sort of ended in a, in a seven-hour-long board meeting that finished at three in the morning. And, and ultimately, after I went through the financials and we forced it to the surface, I realised that we were trading insolvent and effectively illegally. So we came to the decision that night or early morning that we had to cease operations and, and wind it up. And the very next day was the, the hardest day of my life sitting in front of, you know, my, my dear team and, and telling them they no longer had jobs and, and we were closing up shop and literally carry, carrying the furniture out. It was absolutely awful and something I never, ever want to repeat again. So it's partly probably one of the reasons why I love profitable businesses rather than these debt-fueled bombs that, that some people build because I, I'm always managing that downside risk. Um, but look, when it, when it collapsed, I think I, I was 20 and, um, and even though I'd not been a financial backer, I had a third of the, of the liability, a third of the debt. So we had, we had um, vendors and things that, that hadn't been paid. And when we wound up the business, they still needed to be paid. And I owned 33% of the company. So all of a sudden I was, I was young. I was on the hook for, um, for money I didn't have and thought that I was going to end up bankrupt as a, as a 20 year old. And I didn't think that was a very good start to my entrepreneurial career. So turned out to be a pretty good start. Oh, you know, it's, it, it took me about a decade to get over to be honest, but, um, so obviously Pete calling me a few days later and offering this lifeline of, of coming on the room full time and some equity in that business was an amazing saving grace. But the other thing was um, I, I did what I still maintain is one of the best deals of my life and that was convincing one of these guys uh, had a cousin that had made some money in something previously, always loved the products that we built in this engineering space and had always wanted to invest but we weren't, none of us wanted to sell. I did a deal with him to effectively fall on my sword and sell all of my, my one third share of the company in exchange for him to extinguish all of the outstanding debts and pay out all the remaining payroll for the team. And it wasn't, you know, enormous money, but it was substantial six figures. Um, and in exchange for that, he and the, the two other gentlemen that had sort of done the dodgy would effectively start the company again under a new name in a few months time with no debts and, and have another go at it but I would move on and, and have nothing more to do with them and um, and it was so hard to walk away from what I considered my baby and after putting so much time and effort into it but it was it, getting out of that debt trap and never going bankrupt and all those sorts of things was 
was the best thing I ever did. So it gave me a clean start to then go and build uh, something incredible at Vroom 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 and, and I'm so grateful for it. That's a fantastic and uh, very sobering story, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> what would you say is the best business you've ever seen in term, not necessarily just the ones you've been looking to buy, but maybe just in you know, your general day-to-day, what is the best business you've ever seen? I don't know if the best I've ever seen, but one that just popped into my mind was a company called Envato. Um, some people listening might know it as themeforest.net, um, but they're actually a, an Australian company that are um, revenues in the nine figures, a hundred and something million from memory, um, no debt, and they run a digital intangible marketplace, which is why I think it's fantastic, of course. But basically, they own a, a series of websites that sell WordPress themes and and graphic design templates. And, you know, they're, they're a marketplace where makers upload a theme for $40 and anyone in the world can view it, go, yep, that's amazing, I'll download it. And, and Vito are clipping the ticket for, I don't know, 15 20%. And so the, all of the products that they represented are digital intangibles with really high margins. They don't even have to make any of them. They just have the, the marketplace and the traffic. And uh, they've diversified the, across multiple brands and, and multiple niches of, of graphic design and WordPress themes and Joomla themes and, and all these other frameworks and things. So I just think it's a, an absolutely fantastic business. They've built an incredible amount of scale. They've now got network effects because of the, the size of the marketplace um, and there's just there's no inventory the input cost in a running that sort of thing is you know a substantial team of clever people but uh, but it, it looks like what they've built is incredible thank you very much Mike for joining me today I really appreciate your time um, for those who are interested in learning more about you where are some places they can go to to learn more about what you're up to yeah thanks Alex it's it's absolutely my pleasure I love to talk about this stuff um, if people want to chat more, I'm, I'm on Twitter and love hanging out in that FinTwip community. So, uh, you can find me at Mike Boyd, M-I-K-E-B-O-Y-D. Um, and I've got a personal website as well, mikeboyd.com.au. Perfect. Thank you very much, Mike. You're welcome. Thanks very much and, and all the best for the podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.